When you practice magic with loving intention, you're directly influencing the already unfolding story of the universe and infusing the otherwise indifferent dream of God with love, beauty, and benevolence. Magic, whether it be the internal solve of reconciling your shadows or the externally directed work of bringing new realities into fruition, is all about the evolution of the self. I read these in the newsletter of Caroline Lowell, the witch formerly known as Caroline Elliott, and it seemed perfect for today's topic. And I'm glad I followed the intuitive hunch of swapping the episode with Lou last week, so then I also had the space to take it easy and honor my body as she bled, and she just wanted to watch a silly little anime about Egyptian gods. Now, if you've been around a while, you likely know that I love her, her work, and energy, especially at the central kink on which I have our episode. If you are new, welcome. I'm so glad you're here, but also really bad at doing the whole dance around meeting new people, so I rarely express it. So apologies to everyone who started listening with an episode that had no real greetings. Today is the episode which might end up in two parts, about self-conception, language and energetic and how that all relates to manifestation. Just the usual needed disclaimer, I'm not a doctor or therapist, and all information is for entertainment purposes only. Welcome to the Starry Sky and Witchy Things podcast. I'm Alexis, your new witchy BFF. I'm known as Asteria in witch circles. I'm a photographer by day and start obsessed urban witch by night. Sometimes the opposite, often both at once. And I'm as star obsessed as Natsuki Shinomiya in Utapri. Or just a warning, there would be loads of attack references. I'm a Capricorn Sun, Scorpio Moon, and Scorpio Rising. Probably a Lyran Star Seed, a Tarot Lover, and all of my lipsticks have a spell on them. I started this podcast to share my passion and the empowerment and self-love that Cosmic Witchcraft brought into my life. Come every Thursday for captivating conversations about life, business, and magic that blend the practical with the world. And bring you all out history geeks, solo episodes, and amazing guests to explore the ways in which we can bring. Oscar Wilde said that if you know what you want to be, then you inevitably become it. Then that is your punishment. But if you never know, then you can be anything. There is a truth to that. We are not nouns, we are verbs. Another thing, an actor or a writer. I'm a person who does things, I write, I act, and I never know what I am going to do next. I think you can be imprisoned if you think of yourself as a noun. That is something Stephen Fry said that I saw during the rounds on social media. And it paraphrases something one of my lifelong heroes, Oscar Wilde, did say in the De Profundis, which is even more, forgive the pun, profound. I quote, A man whose desire is to be something separate from himself, 
to be a member of parliament or a successful grocer or a prominent solicitor or a judge or something equally tedious invariably succeeds in being what he wants to be. That is his punishment. Those who want a mask have to wear it. And with the dynamic forces of life and those in whom those dynamic forces become incarnate, it is different. People whose desire is solely for self-realization never know where they are going. They can't know. In one sense of the word, it is of course necessary, as the Greek oracle said, to know oneself. That is the first achievement of knowledge. But to recognize that the soul of man is unknowable is the ultimate achievement of wisdom. End quote. Side note. I know that I may have in a scope immunity entirely of my personality, but I have been obsessed with Wild since I was in high school, and it should shock no one that I would love someone whose practically autobiography is titled in Latin, quoting a psalm like the Frank who published it was nodding and boisterous, who wrote a similar lamentation in prison to the Consolation of Philosophy, which I also love, by the way. Anyway, I digress. The reason I'm starting the episode with these is because it relates to these three interconnected topics that I'm looking to explore today, and probably next week, depending on how successful I am at being on point. Before I look at them, I just wanted to define the terms, and I realized I maybe should have done it before the historical geeking out in episode 2. But hey, you live and learn. Self-concept is what psychologists call an idea of the self constructed from the beliefs one holds about oneself and the responses of others. It differs from personality, which is the enduring characteristics and behaviour that comprise a person's unique adjustment to life, including major traits, interests, drives, values, self-concept, abilities and emotional patterns. Your personality does not matter to manifestation, your self-concept and some of these other things on this list do. Language is a system for expressing or communicating thoughts and feelings through speech sounds or written symbols. Of course, you are aware of the fact that I'm using the English language, but there are so many layers to it. The specific words that you choose to use to express something mark your belonging to a group of people betrays some of the beliefs that make up your self-concept too. That's one of the topics that we will explore later on. Finally, energetics is the concept in some psychological theories of a postulated unconscious mental functioning on a level between biology and consciousness. At present, the science we have can only prove the mind insofar as the conscious, so it's still a controversial theory and that will treat it as a matter of metaphysics rather than psychology for this reason. You are welcome to disagree. This theory traces all the way back to Greek philosophy, so of course we see it pop up in the context of magic and the occult. In the spiritual world, there are two ways to approach the matter of energetics, which makes it confusing, because there are opposing views. In the West, we have the line that came to us from Greek philosophy and Jewish mysticism that culminated in Jung's work. In the East, however, energy is seen as a vital force that binds all of reality into one. This is the view of energy that is behind energy healing modalities, such as Reiki, 
or even all forms of traditional Chinese medicine, since even herbalism traces back to the balance of qi in the body. And it's also a concept that can be found in India with the idea of prana, and with the Yoruba people in the concept of ashe. I'm sure other cultures would have it as well, but this is the ones I know of. When we will be looking at how it affects manifestation, I will present both views because the vital force interpretation is likely what you will find discussed by people talking about manifestation, but I personally subscribe to the other view a little more concretely. Anyway, back to second self-concept then. If you are not new to magic or this podcast, you are likely familiar with our old friend Hermes Trismegistus and the Emerald Talent, from which the hermetic concept of as above, so below comes from. Whether you try to read and make sense of the corpus hermeticum or make your life slightly easier by reading the Kybalion, the principles you will find boil down to the same seven principles, although in the Kybalion it's often considered to be too influenced by our old friends from the New Thought movement to be purely hermetic. However, in this context of modern hermeticism, it is hard to avoid the way that it is hard to avoid discussing ceremonial magic without the shadow crawling hanging over us. So I will use the principles as the Cabellian, and then reference back to the history that they come from. The principle of as above so below, as within so without, that I just mentioned, is the second principle, or the principle of correspondence. The first is the principle of mentalism, which states that the all is mind, the universe is mental. The others are the principles of vibration, polarity, rhythm, cause and effect, and gender. I'm going to look at them because they are all relevant to the topic of manifestation, but those that uh, underlie the importance of our self-concept are the first, second, and fourth. I guess the sits too, because the point is that we can affect things with the way that we think about ourselves, so that's like cause and effect. The way self-concept relates to the second principle is quite obvious. If, as within, so without, the way that we look at ourselves is bound to affect our external reality. That's evident even from a perceivable magic perspective, since there's been plenty of research on mindset in recent years, and that was the topic of episode 3 in this season. The principle of mentalism, however, is part of the self-concept of people who hold the hermetic principles to be true, because it means that we believe ourselves to be one with the divine. No one can break the law, for we have the law, the universe is the law, and God is the law. You might be thinking that this is doing a lot of heavy lifting already. After all, not everyone accepts this worldview, even within the witching community. Which brings me to what psychologists have to say about this. In his book, Who Are You Really?, Dr. Brian Little talks about the way the biogenic and sociogenic sources come together to determine if we are predisposed to flourishing or floundering, or, in layman's terms, how much of our personality is nature and how much nurture. Things like electrical activity in our brain, that is, our neural pathways, and our genes show us these tendencies. 
Researchers have individuated a five-point framework nicknamed the Big Five, which supposedly makes up our original personality that we are born with. They exist on a spectrum, and the extremes are open to experience versus closed, conscientious versus casual, extroverted versus introverted, agreeable versus disagreeable, and neurotic versus stable. If you are as obsessed with astrology as some of us are, you might be starting to see a pattern with the way the zodiac polarities work. Maybe the archetypes were based on observation of the ways our genes interact. Who knows? I doubt people will be jumping to find research into how this framework overlaps astrology. Maybe when I get super rich, I will fund it myself. Anyway, if this theory correctly represents the baseline of our personality, we can already see the argument behind why manifestation doesn't work for everyone, which is how the people it doesn't work for justify the idea it doesn't work full stop. And this brings me to the sociogenic side of our personalities, because this kind of worldview is also impacted by the network of circumstances in which you are born. Since we know that neuroplasticity has been proven, we know that the old idea that we become the average of the five people we spend the most time with has some truth to it. We also become the media we consume and are impacted by things and especially by the way we think of these things. Our predispositions come back into play also in the way we build our environment, not just how we respond to the things that we cannot control. George A. Kelly's book, The Psychology of Personal Constructs, sums up this problem this way. All individuals are essentially scientists, erecting and testing hypotheses about the world and revising them in the light of their experience. Those hypotheses are called personal constructs, and they are the conceptual goggles through which we view the world. When our goggles are the goggles that the hermetic principles are true, then we come to believe in a world that we can manipulate, at least to an extent. This, however, is only the beginning, because even if we do embrace such a construct on a conscious level, we may not do it deeply enough to see the results. If you listened to last week's episode with Lou Henwood, you may remember how she talked about the way she changed her outlook on life in the Philippines, only to go back to the personality she had in the UK when she went back to the UK. I spoke about it before, but one thing that is often ignored when talking about manifestation is the role of trauma in keeping us stuck in old patterns that are safe, while being expansive in the way required of manifestation is not. So, for me, it's important to look at self-concepts in a way similar to what Kelly describes, as an ever-evolving interaction of some a priori assumption with the circumstances that we face day to day. It is in this context that I use astrology, and in fact human design too, 
which I use for different reasons in different ways. I have no way to prove what set of assumptions I was born with. Unless I take one of those genome tests out there and trust that they're giving me legit info, which I don't, even though in theory I trust the research that's been done in academia about it. I just tend not to trust things that are available to the public at affordable prices. Anyway, I digress. The archetypes of the zodiac signs provide me with an assumption of what my personality may have been like that I can check against the messaging I inherited from my family that I discuss with my poor therapist every week. It doesn't entirely matter whether the archetypes are true or projections that I have of my own potential looking back over my life, because it gives me two options. If I recognize the trait in myself, I can embrace it or dismiss it. If I don't recognize the trait in myself, I also can embrace it or dismiss it and do what I need to do to change it with neuroplasticity. I'm building my personality to match the archetypes that I want to embody so that I can move from a place where I am a person whose self-concept matches where I want to go, not where I came from is what manifestation is about, although most people will frame it as coming home to your authentic self and stuff. I don't believe in that because if I believe that I am capable of co-creating with, for lack of a better word, the universe, then I can co-create myself too, because at the end of the day, the self is a construct as well. Isn't that fun? Humans use their creative powers in three ways, making things in a way that transform something existing into the material into something else, making other humans through sets, and with our imaginations. Many things in the first category existed as thoughts first as well. However, from a hermetic point of view, the third principle goes beyond invention and innovation, or the kind of poetic imagination of an artist. Our worldviews and even our moods at any one time are creating a reality. That's what people mean when they talk about creating in the context of manifestation. Now, from a philosophical standpoint, there are some murky waters here. Because either we live in a world where no free will exists and therefore we have no power to co-create, or we live in a world where free will exists and if our wills go against the wills of other, then the result of our magic are not going to be the intention we set out with. Although some practitioners believe it's possible to influence the will of others, just that it's unethical to do so for most of them, but even so, it is the reason why in Hermeticism there is a concept of the true will, which comes to us via the Golden Dawn, drawing on the writings of Eliphal Levi who drew on the Kabbalistic tradition. Moving the occult for long enough and you come across the same players over and over, it's a bit like that joke about Olivia Colman being in everything in the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who sketch, and she's still in everything 10 years later, isn't she? In a similar way to systems like human design and other philosophies they draws from, the idea of the true will in Thelema is that we have a purpose in life and we have to decondition from outside influences in order to achieve it. 
which happens with as a moment-to-moment action in perfect harmony with nature, or what many would call inspired or aligned action. Now, I am a hedonist, so not as highly minded as our friends who are or were spiritual teachers, so the great work as union with the divine in the case of Levi, whose writings pretty much imply what I often say about prayer in Catholicism being a form of magic, since at the end of the day it was a heretical priest. That was his cultural background. Crowley defined it as the uniting of the opposites. In Magic Without Tears, it wrote, it may mean the uniting of the soul with God, of the microcosm with the macrocosm, of the female with the male, of the ego with the non-ego. It's the path of spiritual growth and self-realization. My calling myself a hedonist is one of many examples of my own self-concept as play. When I tell you I'm a cosmic witch, I am giving you an idea of something that is important to me and my sense of my own identity. Hedonism is another one, although I tend not to use it because of the connotation it has in popular culture. But it just means the egoistic pursuit of short-term gratification by indulging in sensory pleasures without regard for the consequences. That's not the sense in which I mean it although it would be a lie to say that it is not true of me at all. It's a bit more complicated than that. Hedonism is a family of philosophies whose commonality is the idea that pleasure is key to humanity. While some people think that it is a philosophy that cannot coexist with the hermetic ideas that we discussed so far, I believe it can. If we think of the world as existing in polarities, as the fourth principle teaches us, then pleasure and pain is a polarity that we need to acknowledge. And magicians in the Renaissance did, because despite what people think, they are Italian, and Catholicism before the Reformation was a lot more relaxed, especially among the rich and powerful who could buy their way out of purgatory. So the Puritan hang-ups of the Victorians were not a thing until Europe was engulfed in a struggle to prove who was the most Christian Christian of them all. And according to Hermeticist Sam Block, who has a lot more patience than I have, the classical Hermetic texts also don't condemn hedonism as alien outright. In a blog post from July 1st, 2023, I can't even read, they look at the reference across various texts to conclude that, taken in context, hermeticism is not an ascetic path. It is a path that encourages feeling good within the context of cultivating ourselves for the good of the world. A concept that is only antithetic to hedonism in its popular cultural definition of pleasure-seeking egotism. reason I mention this is not because I believe we should all embrace hermeticism as a way of life, but because a lot of manifestation talk does it in a sneaky way, because it never presents itself as a cult, and nowadays, even in the mainstream rainbow and unicorn spiritual ways, but relies on the assumption that we are not our bodies. We really are souls that happen to wear the bodies for the sake of being incarnated in the world, and having a human experience, which is a hermetic idea. 
So our topic today is self-concept. I believe that it's important to know if that's part of how you perceive yourself, that's the tradition in which you are immersing yourself. Even if that's all that you take from it, just credit where credit is due. So, going back to our Renaissance magicians, different views existed at the time based on how strongly a philosopher was attached to the Christian faith. For example, Erasmus of Rotterdam and his disciple Thomas More both held that God had created mankind to be happy and therefore sanctioned the pursuit of pleasure within the constraints of what was not sinful. The pleasure of the mind was encouraged, although the pleasures of the body that were not in contradiction with the virtues of good Christians should cultivate were welcome too. Epicureanism specifically was under attack for the idea of avoiding pain on the grounds that all there is is the material world, since pain is sanctifying in the Catholic worldview, where the soul and an afterlife are thing. But that's not the only hedonistic school of thought in classical antiquity. For example, the Sirens focused on pleasure and avoidance of pain in a way that would be familiar to those who practice mindfulness. Only the sensations of the moment can be known, and concern with the past or the future only causes uncertainty and anxiety, and should therefore be avoided. Socrates and Plato also discussed the idea of a good life, plenty, and if you want to look into that idea specifically, Dana of Self-Help Poets just released an episode on eudaimonia, or eudaimonia in the English pronunciation. As usual, I will just put all of the links to everything I just mentioned in the show notes. Marsilio Ficino, for example, never truly shook off the early influence of the Epicurean poet Lucretius on his thinking. And his treatise on Platonic Theology deals with the idea of a soul and what balance of the corporeal and the immaterial is ideal for human flourishing. Since he is the man responsible for the preservation of a lot of magical texts that predate him, as well as the creation of some of his own, is worth mentioning. His De Triplici Vita deals with the role of magic in philosophy and nature, examining things like the mechanics of the body's connection with the soul and how to capture the powers of the stars to practice magic. If you were thinking, how come she isn't doing a whole series on the man alone? She's clearly obsessed. It's because of a lack of opportunity to go geek out in the British Library at the moment. It's up there with a 70% chance per episode that I would make a self-deprecatory joke about my crush on a certain middle-aged seyub. It's just that when thinking about manifestation and our self-concept in the context of it, I believe it's important to ask where we fall on this scale, because that will inform everything in our approach, and our approach will inform at least half of the outcome. Next week, I will be looking at language and energetics as two ways in which our self-concept influences the outcome of our manifestation just because I noticed that I'm getting close to the 30 minutes mark and I try not to give you too long episodes unless it's 
guest episode because it's kind of like nicer to listen to a longer thing if it's someone else's story and not just me dumping a lot of information on you. So I would be going at it from the perspective that you have established that you are in fact a magician in the way that the archetype of the magician in the tarot does. So I hope this episode will actually have informed how that, sorry, what that actually means. Kind of getting confused. Uh, you know how I have a tendency to leave the recording to the very last minute most of the time? Well, it is 10.30 p.m. the day before release. So, yeah. ADHD for the win. So, as I was saying, I will leave the recap. So otherwise, this instead of turning a two-part episode, it would become a whole season. And I would never get around to the forecast for this week in the process. So if there's anything unclear about what I mean with our self-concept as the magician, shoot me an email, the address starryskypodcast at gmail.com or you can find me on social media. Everything is in the show notes as always. And I will then recap anyway. But for now, time for the forecast for next week. The transits to pay attention to will be the Sun squaring Jupiter that will be exact at 202 a.m. CET on the 7th, which is the day before the peak of the Lion's Gate portal. The day after the portal on the 9th, we have Venus squaring Uranus at 1.08 p.m. These harder aspects focus us on the nature of our desires, since we were just discussing true will. Are we confident from a place of humble recognition of our abilities, or are we confident from a place of arrogance or overcompensating for our insecurities? Do we want material success or love to prove something to others, or because it enables us to bring about our ultimate purpose in life? For most of us, we probably still have an element of both attitudes in us that we need to reconcile with if we want to manifest our desires. The moon this week will be cycling for, from Pisces to Gemini with the last quarter in Taurus on the day of the Lion's Gate portal. Some witches tend to see the moon phases as governing attraction or release, but to me they fall under the principle of polarity. To make space for more, you need to let go of what is no longer needed, whether it be limiting beliefs about ourselves or things or people. Often, to release beliefs, you need to bring in knowledge and people, so they can do inseparable. This idea comes together beautifully in the card for this week, which is the Ten of Swords. In my deck, which is the mystical manga tarot that Llewellyn really should pay me for promoting, is a beautiful sunrise or sunset and what looks like a female figure with her arm crossed and a blue dress that blends with the water in which she stands is facing towards it with the ten swords on her back like a person is the Iron Throne. A long blonde hair part at the back leaving the back with the shadow of the blood from her wounds visible and it hauntingly beautiful. Now, swords is the suit 
of the intellect and the world of ideas. And the 10 is the card of a completion of a cycle. And in these suits, it specifically represents letting go. It's about the kind of situations where you've done all you could and thinking about it is not going to bring about a different outcome. And it seems like a strange card to pull after talking about whether or not we can manipulate our experiential reality, which is what manifestation is at the end of the day. But at the end of the day, the Ten of Swords is a card of surrender, of admitting defeat, of letting go of what we cannot control. However, the fact that the swords appear to be merging with the water and that we have a connection to the sun card in the act of the sun rising or setting, should serve is nature's way to say that all endings hide the seed of new beginnings and vice versa. All that to me suggests that we are not meant to be passive victims of our perceived defeat and that the betrayal of our thoughts can flow into our emotions and become something that nurtures life, as water does. In a way, the Ten of Swords in this deck reminds me of the idea that rejection is the redirection, just a common positive reframing of manifestation that, quote-unquote, failed. And on this melancholic note, I wish you a great week, and until next time, keep living in wonder. Thank you for listening to the Starry Sky and Witchy Things podcast. A huge thank you to Jenna Sword at Jenna, S-O-A-R-D on Instagram for the cover art and Papa Planet for the music. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to be notified when a new one comes out, please subscribe on your platform of choice. And if you really love it, leave a five-star rating and review, which will help me be found by more people who will enjoy it too. Also, feel free to share it on social media and with anyone you think should give it a shot. You can send your questions and comments to my email starryskypodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at starryskypodcast. And you can also subscribe to my monthly newsletter at witchymusings.substack.com where I share reflections and tips about the astrological seasons. Until next time, 